You ever met anybody that just tried to like out busy you? I mean, like no matter how busy you were, no matter how busy you are, you described how busy you were and they tried to like one up that. Like you're like, yeah, man, I had three presentations at work this week and then we had to go drop my son off at college. And they're like, really? I had four presentations and I had to drop two kids off at grad school because that's worse, right? Or you're like, yeah, man, you know, my kids, they had three baseball games they're like this week. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, we had six baseball games like in two days. Oh, okay. Well, like you, no matter what you said, no matter how busy you were, no matter what you had going on, they just out busied you. They, they, they could not allow you to be busier than they were. And, and, you know, we've, we talked last week, Pastor Mark started us off on a brand new series called Breathing Room, kind of creating space for life. And we've talked about how we're looking to find this rhythm for life. You know, All of us are busy in some way. All of us are stressed in some way. All of us have a lot of things going on in some way. But what Pastor Mark talked to us about last week, which was so incredible, is the idea that we are not defined. Our identity is not found in what we can produce. It's not found in all the things that we can do. And and this is not to say you shouldn't be busy. This is not to say you shouldn't have a lot of things going on. That's a blessing. To be able to have things that you are passionate about or have things that you do, have things that provide finances to you, jobs and things. But, you know, to say I am not defined, I am not identified by the things that I produce with my lives and so uh, with my life. And, and so for all of us, you know, I would encourage us just to make sure we don't try to out busy anybody, you know, because we, we have a tendency to feel like that in this culture, there's so much going on. There's so many moving pieces. There's so much happening that we almost get an adrenaline rush from busyness, don't we? I mean, we almost get this sense of accomplishment by being busy. We go, oh, look at all the things I did today. Whether or not any of those things were good things, whether or not any of those things actually moved us towards the, the touchdown on our job, the goal of our job, the win of our job, we just felt busy because we returned 17,000 emails. Somebody told me one time that email is someone else's to-do list for you, Right? And so if I did 17,000 emails today, that's great. I did 17,000 things for someone else most of the time. But we feel this sense of accomplishment because of how busy we are and how many things we did today. But really, what is life about? What is the rhythm of life we've been called to? Because that's what it is. Pastor Mark, again, talked about last week to open the series with this Sabbath invitation. This idea that we are invited into the rhythm of the life of God. That our identity is not found in what we can produce, but our identity is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The identity of the Son of God. And so the idea that God rested on the seventh day. He created on the six six days prior and on the seventh day he rested. And we talked about the idea that that rest was about settling in. It was ceasing to work and settling into what had already been done. And that for you and I, we are called to, we are invited according to the Ten Commandments, even according to the rhythm of Jesus Christ when he walked the earth. We are invited into the kind of rhythm that says, I can cease to produce and settle into what's already been done. That's a hard thing for all of us. It's a difficult thing. And one of the things that makes that most difficult is because we see all of the other people around us. I mean, we, we watch them. We watch how busy they are. We watch what they produce. We watch what they have. We watch what they attain. They got this car. They got this house. They got this promotion. They got this raise. They got this. Their kids have those things. Their wives have those things. The, they went on this vacation and this trip. And, and, and if we're not careful, 
our busyness is grounded in trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's grounded in trying to attain something that other people have or to try to acquire or accumulate things that we might not have even wanted in the first place. But because we see that others have gotten those things, others have acquired those things, others are seeking those things, we think that's what our lives should be about. And so a lot of our busyness, a lot of our stress comes because we think that we are in a competition to keep up with the other people around us in our lives. But God has called us to an entirely different rhythm for life. He's called us. He's invited us into a completely different rhythm than all of the noise that we just heard. And every one of those pieces of noise, they may not go away. They are a part of our lives. But even in the midst of that, we can find a different rhythm. If you've got your Bibles today, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. So you'll flip maybe about, I don't know, a little more than halfway through your Bible. If you've got an app or a phone app or something like that, you just type in Matthew and it's going to be right there. Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to find ourselves today in a story that some of you may be very familiar with. It's a story that, uh, that I really love because it teaches us a lot and it really kind of challenges us because we think we know how the story will play out. So Matthew chapter 20, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And this is what it says in Matthew 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now stop right here for just a second. We'll stop a couple times throughout the reading. Just about every time I've ever preached anything where the word denarius shows up in scripture, I have preached it by just saying, hey, let's just call it a dollar. You know, he gives them a dollar. Well, that's not entirely fair, and it probably would bring some confusion to this story because, you know, it starts with a D, denarius. It's a weird word. We don't have a denarius in our current currency system. And so D, dollar, I'm simple-minded. It made sense to do that. But let's just say that the average vineyard worker, because what a denarius was is it was a day's wages. So let's just say the average vineyard worker, and this might have been a lot of money, but let's just say for easy math, they made $26,000 a year. That sounds like pretty good money, pretty decent money, you know, 26000 a year. That would average out to be about $500 a week. And so if they worked, you know, five days a week and had the weekend off, he is saying to them, you come work for me for one day and I'll pay you $100. Okay, so not denarius dollar. Let's just say he's going to give them one. He's giving them a day's wages. Now, whatever you want to do, inflation, you're way smarter than me. But let's just say a day's wages in that day for a vineyard worker was $100 a day. I'm not trying to create a new doctrinal position here or to try to give you some, this is exactly what a denarius was in that day. Just for a point of reference, let's say that he said to them, I'll give you $100 if you come and work for me at the end of the day. Let's keep reading in verse three. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Now, let me just stop right here because in verse one, it said that he went out early in the morning. And then verse 3 felt the need to clarify and say he went out at 9 in the morning. Did anybody else think that nine's pretty early? Right? There's no need for him to say that. That seems redundant. I will, I'll tell on Pastor Mark, who's our senior pastor for both of our, our Mount Perry North locations. He's an early riser. And when I say early riser, I mean like dark 30 early riser. It is not an uncommon thing for him to email me at like 4.52 a.m. Okay? That's ungodly. Like, I don't know how he has a relationship with God and gets up that early. He, he's called me before where I've done, I know you've never done this. He's called me and be like, Hey man, what you doing? <clears throat> I'm up <clears throat> praying. I was just, you know, I got anointing oil in my throat or something here from, I've been snoozing. I mean, I'm out. I'm not up at that ungodly hour, 
But this landowner went out early in the morning. We think about 6 a.m. And then he went out at 9 a.m. as well. And he got some others standing in the marketplace. Look at what they're doing. Doing nothing. Continue reading in verse 4. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around doing nothing. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Verse seven, because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, Here's what's interesting. Now, the work day that these vineyard workers would have been working, the average work day would have been 12-hour shifts, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we understand at the beginning of the day at 6 a.m., the landowner goes out and recruits some guys who are doing nothing. They're standing around. They have no job for that day. He recruits them and says, hey, come and work for me, and I'll pay you a denarius. I'll pay you $100, okay? He goes back out at 9. He goes back out at noon. He goes back out at 3. And then he goes back out at 5. There's only one hour left in the work day. He goes out at 5, finds others doing nothing in the marketplace and says, come and work for me. I'll pay you what's fair. He does not give them a specified amount that he's going to pay them. He says, I'll pay you what's fair. And so they probably think they're going to get, you know, one twelfth or so of the wages for that day because they're only working one out of the 12 hours of that work day. But they come and they work for him. And then... The landowner in this story tells the foreman, he says, call all the workers together, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, beginning with the five o'clock workers. Now, here's what I love about that verse. It has nothing to do with the landowner. It has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus is the one telling this story. And Jesus is setting me and you up. Here's what he's doing. He's telling the story in a way that those who are standing around listening would think that they know how the story is going to play out. He's going to call the workers together. He's going to do exactly what I just said. The five o'clock workers would get, you know, about $10 because $100 is a day's wages. So he's going to give them about $10 for working, you know, plus or minus 10% of the day. And then the three o'clock workers, they would come and they might get $25. And then the noon workers, they might get, you know, maybe 50 bucks or so. And then the 9 a.m. workers, they would get $75. And then the 6 a.m. workers would get the full $100 that they were promised at the beginning of the day. Because those that were standing around listening had heard Jesus tell this story and say that when he went out at 6, he told them he would give them one day's wages or $100. And so this idea is in their mind as they're thinking about how the story is going to play out. Jesus is setting the listener up. And those listeners include me and you. Okay? If you've already, you heard the story, you've read it a thousand times, you've heard it preached way better than this. Imagine you'd never heard it and listen to this for the very first time. Verse nine, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each one received a hundred dollars. Put yourself in the shoes of the 6 a.m. worker. You're thinking, I'm about to get rich. I'm about to get a thousand dollars. He just paid a hundred dollars to the guy that's been here like 45 minutes. Okay, here we go. He pays them $100, verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. I'm going to read that one more time because that's going to be key in just a minute. So when those who, who, were, who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received $100. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us 
who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. I want you to listen to the attitude. I'm sure none of you ever have attitude like that. You never have this sense that like, this isn't fair, God. This isn't fair, boss. My kids have that tude a lot. This isn't fair, dad. He didn't help clean up the room. He didn't help get the toys out of the yard. He this isn't fair. We develop the sense that this isn't fair. There's something about the circumstances of our life that doesn't match up with what we were expecting it to be. Right? This, this isn't fair. They had an attitude. They developed this sense that I'm better. I'm, I should get more. I worked longer. I deserve more. And yet, what did they say in that last verse? You have treated them as equals to us. If we're not careful in our hearts, we develop this ranking system. We develop this system in our minds that kind of puts everybody that we come in contact with in some kind of pecking order. We're on that list. They're on that list. Some people are higher on that list than us. Some people are worse on that list than us. And everybody that we encounter, everybody that we have the opportunity to meet goes somewhere on that list. We match them up pretty quickly with, are they better than us? Or are they worse than us? They have more money than us. They have less money than us. Are their circumstances in life a little worse than us? Okay, they're a little lower on the list than we are. We come into church and we're all grace-filled, godly, saved people. And we see people, we go, thank God I'm not like that. <laughs> thank God I don't have that story. Thank God I've never experienced what they're experiencing. Thank God my story's not like their story. And we slot them on the list somewhere. Compared to where we're at on the list. They're a little better than us. They're a little worse than us. They're a little more saved than us. They're a little less saved than us. They're a little better off than us. A little worse off than us. I ran across this quote as we were kind of putting this together. That says little seems more unequal. Than the equal treatment of unequals. Little seems more unequal. Than the equal treatment of unequals. Those people that we think are not equal to us. When they are treated equal to us. It just grates all over us doesn't it we would never admit it because we're, we're too holy for that but inside of us somewhere deep down there's this part of us that says don't they know D doesn't this person over here this third party know that i'm better than them how dare they treat us as equals i'm i'm better i have more to offer i'm in a little higher social class i don't have the same problems they have my family's not as messed up as theirs is i didn't have the same history and past and it wasn't as all messed up and muddy and messy and dirty don't they know little seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals and, and this is an interesting thought if god treats no one unfairly like if he treats everyone the same if he treats everyone fairly if he treats no one unfairly, he also deals with many far more leniently than they deserve. Think about this, because we always worry about the people that he treats better than we think they deserve. But really, we don't ever put ourselves in a position where we're getting more than we deserve. Where we're not getting all that we're supposed to get as it relates to punishment or as it relates to some of the things that we don't want to think about. We only think about the benefits and so, if God treats no one unfairly, he also deals with many far more leniently than that. God alone, in his sovereignty, he chooses how he deals with humanity. You and I, thank God, are not the judge. We are not the one that gets to slot people 
We only see part of the story. We only see a portion of the details of their lives. We don't know everything that's going on. We don't know all of the circumstances. It's not up to me and you to decide where people are slotted. Who's better than us? Who's worse than us? But God is the one who chooses how he will give his favor and his grace and his blessings to. Let's continue reading in verse 13. The story's kind of wrapping up here. But he answered one of them. This is the landowner responding. I am not being unfair to you, friend. I don't know if that's sarcastic, friend. I think it is because I, I treat God a little bit like the best version of me. So in my head, I think he would be like, I'm not treating anybody unfairly, friend. But I don't know that he said that because he's way better than me. Okay. That's how I would have said it. But okay. Didn't you agree to work for $100? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I listen, listen to this. This is huge theological ground right here. So like perk your theological ears up. Okay. This is, this is big. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Are, or are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Many of us have that on a coffee mug or it's a Facebook meme or something that we post and we have no idea what it means. It's found in this story. The first will be last and the last will be first. Are you envious because I'm generous? The the landowner here said to the the worker that was hired at 6 a.m. that felt like he was being unfairly treated by only getting $100, only getting a day's wages. And he says, don't I have the right to do what I want to with my own money? Now, we hear that and we think, wow, okay, so that means I have the right to do what I want to with my own money. This story is not about me and you. That's the problem that we have here. This story is not about you. And it's not about me. Look at verse 1 that we read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. It does not say the kingdom of heaven is like a worker at 6 a.m. Doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a 9 a.m. worker. Doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a noon worker, or a 3 p.m. worker, or a 5 p.m. worker, or someone in a life group at Mount Perry, North Canton. Doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like those who serve on a Sunday, those who read their Bible religiously, those who give 10% of their income. No, the kingdom of heaven is like a land owner. Jesus is telling a story here to a group of people standing around, and he is not telling them something about themselves. He's telling them something about God. And the problem that you and I have when we read many of the scriptures, many of the stories in the Bible is we read the story and we're looking for the application for us. And that's great. That's not a problem in itself, except that sometimes we twist the story to think that the story is about us. And guess what? None of the story is about us. We have a role. We have a part in the story, but the story is not about us. We are not the main character in any story, including our own lives. The main character of every story in life is Jesus Christ. And maybe that sounds like the preacher thing to say, but it's true. God, in his sovereignty, the creator of the universe, has written, is writing, will continue to write a story before we got here, while we're here, long after we're gone. And the main character of that story is not you and it's not me. Verse 1 of Matthew 20 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a land owner. Jesus was trying to teach the listener, including us this morning, Something about the nature of God. And so listen back now to the last few verses. And don't think about how you deal with your money. 
Don't think about it from the unfair perspective of a 6 a.m. worker. Think about it now in understanding more about the nature and character of God. God speaking to you. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Nothing seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. God is the center of this story. He is the one that Jesus was talking about. He's the one that all of this points to. We're learning about his nature and his interaction with humanity and not about ourselves. And again, this series that we're in, this breathing room series over the next two more weeks beyond today is just about understanding why we find so much fulfillment in staying busy. Why we find so much joy and fulfillment, whether we want to admit it or not, from just being stressed out to the max. Why we feel a sense of accomplishment from just doing stuff and having stuff and being around more and more and more people doing a lot of things we don't even like to do. We don't even like those people, some of them. How do we find this rhythm in life? The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. If our identity is not found in what we can produce, if our identity is found in Christ and not in what we can produce, then it doesn't matter if I'm a 6 a.m. worker, a 9 a.m. worker, a noon worker, a 3 p.m. worker, a 5 p.m. worker. I am an equal in that I serve at the pleasure of the landowner. And so here's a couple things that I just, I just found in this story that I think I can learn about me. And I can learn about the landowner found here in Matthew chapter 20. Number one is that my disappointment, our disappointment produces an ungrateful attitude leading to entitlement. My disappointment in life produces something ugly in me. When I get disappointed, I become ungrateful. And when I become ungrateful, I I, I tend to feel entitled to something. You might say it this way. You might say where gratitude ends, entitlement begins. Think about that in your own life. That's been challenging for me. Where gratitude ends, where I quit being grateful, I become entitled. Where I quit saying I'm thankful I have this, where I'm thankful I have these things. When when I get to that point, I become entitled. I think I deserve. I I should have. I look at others and I think I I should have what they have, not look how blessed I am to have what I do have. The workers that are getting paid here should have been grateful. How did he even find these workers? Every single time he went and found people that had nothing else to do. Like he found workers who couldn't find work somewhere else. He didn't go to another job site and pull them off of the crane at that job site. He didn't pull them out of the fields picking the vineyards on that in that in that vineyard, picking the vines in that vineyard. He walked into the city square and he found a p- bunch of people standing around who had nothing to do because they had no job. And he said, "Hey, you've got nothing to do. Why don't you come and work for me and I'll pay you what's fair?" And he gave them work to provide for their family. He blessed them with the ability to have income and instead of being grateful, 
they got greedy. I know you've never done that. I've only done it twice. No, I'm just kidding. But instead of being grateful for that opportunity, they got greedy. Where gratitude ends, entitlement begins. This idea that when I stop being thankful, when I, when I stop thanking God, when I start getting disappointed, man, I, I produce this ungrateful attitude and that leads to entitlement. The second thing is that our disappointment is often the result of unrealistic expectations that we set for ourselves. Our disappointment, my disappointment, is often the result of unrealistic expectations that we set for ourselves. What was the agreement from the landowner to the 6 a.m. workers? Come and work for me all day, and I'll pay you what? $100, right? And so they were the ones who changed their expectations when they watched the 5 p.m. workers get paid first. I told you to pay attention when we were reading that because that was going to come back and bite us. That was a big deal. He, he said, when, when verse, uh, verse 10, so when those who came, who were hired first, when, he, when they saw those, the 6 a.m. saw those people who came and were hired last, they watched those get paid a denarius. It says they expected to receive more. They expected. There was no renegotiation of the contract. The landowner didn't come up to them and whisper, hey, listen, let me pay these guys first, and then let's kind of see where the money lands, and I'll give you a little more. They changed their expectations. And so their disappointment at the end of the day, and really their grumbling and complaining, came out of a place where they changed the agreement. They changed the conversation that they had had with the landowner. They were the ones who got disappointed because they changed their expectations based on what they saw others getting. Again, I know you've never done that. I've only done it twice. I'm kidding. I've done it more than that today, probably. This week, for sure. Where I look at other people, with my eyes, I see other people, and I think, man, why can't I have that? Why can't I do that? Why can't I be that talented? Why can't I have those things? Why can't our family do those? I mean, because we look at other people, and we change our own expectations and create unrealistic expectations. And so we're the ones who are disappointed. We're the ones who are let down, not because the agreement has changed, but because we have changed our expectations. And I fall into that trap all of the time. And my rhythm to life then gets increased and I'm getting more busy and busier and more stressed because I'm trying to produce all of these things that I see other people having. And that's not what I've been called to. I've been called to a rhythm. I've been called to a Sabbath invitation that says, listen, you work hard and you produce all that you can produce, but your identity is not found in what you can produce. Your identity is found in me. Rest in me. Find rhythm in me. Receive the blessings that come from me. Be thankful for those blessings. And understand that I'm calling you to this. The third thing is that our disappointment is often the result of comparing ourselves to others. This kind of goes hand in hand. But we change those expectations because we look to others. We take our eyes off of God. We take our eyes off of the work we've been called to. And we compare ourselves to other people. And again, we, we don't pay attention. We, we kind of get some joy maybe out of those people we think are worse off than us. But that's never good enough because then we start comparing ourselves to those who we think are better than us. And we find disappointment there. That's, that's a dead end road. It's a cycle that you can't get out of. 
because we continue to compare ourselves to others. And what Jesus was teaching here is that everyone's equal. The things that you can see with your eyes are not what separate the people around you from you. Everyone is equal. They may have been entrusted with more. They may have other opportunities, different opportunities, but those opportunities do not define them. This story is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the people that you see around you in your life. This story is about a generous landowner who called every single one of us out of a life of nothingness into a life of something. That's the story. That's the story. Whether you experience the the rock bottom nothingness or whether you say, yeah, my life was pretty good. It was okay. It was great. But I didn't have a hope. I didn't have a plan. There were some things that weren't working out the way I thought. Relationship with God, life in Christ, a Christ-centered life that we're about here isn't a genie in a bottle. It doesn't promise you that you'll never have pain. It doesn't promise you that everything will work out exactly the way you want it to. But what it says is that the generous landowner is the one responsible for you. He called you. He's the one. He's the one that blesses. He's the one that engages. He's the one that chose you. Scripture says that. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says that he is the one who initiated his love and his relationship with us. It's about a generous landowner who called those who had no work to work on his behalf to reap a harvest they didn't plant. Because that's what we often struggle with. We think everything that we receive, we produced. We work hard on our job, we get a paycheck. But sometimes we forget how we got that job. Sometimes we forget how we have the things that we have. My dad says it this way a lot. He says, you know, we, we reap in fields we didn't plant in. We drink from wells we didn't dig. It's the idea that none of us got here on our own. If maybe you did get this job because you hustled, Maybe somebody helped you get through college to have the education to get that job. Maybe somebody helped you get the experience in another line of work that set you up to get this job. Maybe your parents instilled in you a good work ethic and discipline. Or there was somebody somewhere along the way that invested in you to set you up to get where you're at. And now you're reaping from fields you did not plant in. And you're drinking from wells you did not dig. The landowner calls you to work on his behalf. You had nothing else to do that mattered. He says, come and work for me. And reap a harvest you did not plant. And often we're left with disappointment. So how do we combat disappointment? How do we, in this finding rhythm, finding a place in life that is fulfilling, that doesn't leave us disappointed and comparing ourselves to others and Just working ourselves into a tizzy and being so busy and so stressed for things that don't even matter. How do we do that? Two very quick things. The first is that we remember where we came from. We remember where we came from. It doesn't mean that what you have today is better or a lot better than you used to have. But it's the idea that way back, way back. We remember where we came from. We remember what blessings we do have that we did not create on our own. 
that God gave to us himself supernaturally or through someone else. But we remember where we came from. And I I just think a really cool refocusing is just to pause and reflect on the good and the bad. How did I get here? Who, Who helped me get here? What did God do to get me to this place? How has God blessed me? How can I pause here and reflect? Remember where you came from. And the second thing is to be thankful that he called you. Remember, the landowner called these workers because they had nothing else to do. And I don't know where your relationship with God is at. I don't know if maybe you're, you're really, really committed and you're living this Christ-centered life the best you know how. Or, or maybe you're still searching it out. You're still trying to figure it out. Maybe you want to, but you seem to keep slipping up. That's okay. For all of us in the room today, there is the idea that we can remember where we came from and be thankful that he called us because he is the initiator. He's the one that came first. We can't be good enough on our own. We, we can't on our own try to be good enough to earn the love of God, to earn the grace of God, to earn the forgiveness of God, to find a place of acceptance. He initiated every part of that. And when I understand that, when I rest in that, the busyness and the stress become something completely different than how I find my identity. My identity can be found in him. My identity can be found. How much better would your life be? How much better would my life be if I took my eyes off of others and put my eyes back on him? How much better would my life be if I didn't find my identity based on what others had, what others got, what they got paid, what they were able to acquire, what they were able to accumulate? How much better would my life be if my stress and busyness was not based on them, but I found my identity in him? I rested in that. I lived in that place. I lived to please and honor and serve him. Today, as we respond, we're going to respond through communion. We're going to take a moment here at the close of our time just to remember the, the life and the death of Jesus Christ. This is something that Jesus did at the very end of his life with his closest followers. Right before he went to the cross, he, he, he took them through this moment that we're about to take together. In just a moment, the volunteers, the hosts, they're going to come and they're going to serve you. And Sean's going to sing a really great song that he and Crystal wrote a while back. And it's a really special song that help us just to kind of pause and reflect on this moment. But in just a minute, as they pass these elements, you're going to be holding a little cracker, wafer, bread, piece, and a cup with some juice in it. And as you hold that today, I want you to look at those things and see something. I want you to see the finished work of Jesus Christ. We'll come back in a moment and we'll kind of participate together. But I want you to look at those elements and say, this represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And him on the cross being crucified, being sacrificed for my salvation, for my healing, for my forgiveness. To allow me to be a part of the story of God. It's finished. And with it being finished, I can find rest in that. That I don't work to earn my keep with God. 
That I don't, I don't do a lot of things in life so that God will love me more, accept me more, believe in me more, bless me more. I understand that the finality of the cross and the work that's been done there provides for me rest. A rhythm to life that says, I love you unconditionally. Not based on conditions. Not based on what you can do for me. I just love you. And thousands of years ago when this was done for the first time. And over the last several thousand years as it's been reenacted again. It represents finality. It represents identity. The work has been done. And so you and I can cease working and settle in to what's been done. I want to pray for that. And then the hosts are going to come and serve you as Sean sings. And then we'll come back and take communion together. God, I thank you today for the work that's been done. I thank you today, God, that you're a God who loves us, who loved us first. God, who believed in us before we believed in ourselves. Who trusted us before we trusted ourselves, really. Who blesses us when we don't deserve blessing. Who gave grace to us when we didn't deserve grace. Who extended mercy to us when we deserved punishment. And God, we are working ourselves literally to death. Because we haven't figured out to how to rest. To rest in you. Find a rhythm, rhythm that's God-honoring because we keep up with other people. We, we attempt to live in ways to get what they've gotten. And God, we find ourselves so often disappointed and let down. Not because you've disappointed us, or not because you've let us down, but because we've changed our expectations. We've taken our eyes off of you and put our eyes on them. So today, God, as we take of communion in the next few minutes, I pray that we would see the bread and the juice as the final act needed for our salvation, for our healing, for acceptance from you. God, let us rest in that today. In Jesus' name we pray.